Be seated. Most of us are people of routine. We keep our schedules, we do our jobs, we stay in our own lanes. But sometimes our routines become ruts and we miss God. It takes something big, something extraordinary to get our attention, to wake us up, to make us see beyond ourselves and notice what God is up to. In the book of Acts, we see God do just that, something big and extraordinary. He established and unleashed the church. With just a handful of emboldened eyewitnesses and a story of good news, God forever changed the world. He did more than anyone could have imagined, and he still does today. So don't miss it. Let's open our eyes and see God do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Listen to these words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. His power that is at work within us. What if we prayed believing those words? What would our prayers look like? What would our lives look like if we truly believed that God's power was at work within us? That he could truly do more than we ask. So much more than we can even fathom or imagine in our brains. Just let your mind go there for a moment. What could God do if you just tapped into that power? What could he do in your life? What could he do in your relationships? What could he do in this church? What could he do in this community? What could he do with your sense of purpose? With your anxiety, what could he do with every aspect of your life if we truly believed that his power is at work within us? And in our minds, as we go there and we allow ourselves to go there, it's not long before we are jolted back to reality. It's not long before things like fear and insecurity and doubt and skepticism cause us to put our feet back on solid ground. We're wasting our time dreaming, imagining, envisioning all these things that may or may not happen. I live in the real world. I have real problems. Let me ask you a question today. Does God still work in visible, tangible ways in our world? Do you believe that God is still active in our world? We read the Bible and God is all over the pages of the Bible. His spirit is moving. He is working. But what about now? I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes I struggle with this question. Because I live most days with my feet on this solid ground. And I look around and I see so much that is wrong with this world. I see so much injustice I see so many things that I assume if God were more active, these things wouldn't happen. These things wouldn't appear. People wouldn't go through this kind of suffering, including me. Does God still work in the world today? And maybe you, like me, have been told by well-meaning Christians that God doesn't do miracles today. And that the Holy Spirit is confined to the pages of the Bible. And that any perceived manifestation of the work of the Spirit in this world is probably just an emotional reaction by overly charismatic people. 
And when I hear things like that, something inside of me wants to shout, do not put God in a box. Why would we put guardrails on the God of the universe? Who am I to say where God is and where God isn't? How God works and how he doesn't. When he shows up and when he does not. Church, is there a chance that we have reduced discipleship to a cognitive understanding, to a logical series of steps, to a list of to-dos, and in the process completely missed the God of wonder? Have we found tidy answers to all the questions? Have we made Christianity an acceptable lifestyle? Have we hemmed in God by our own misguided assumptions? Have we used our thoughts and assumptions to form a theology of the Spirit rather than allowing Scripture to form a theology of the Spirit? I wonder, have we asked without really believing Have we allowed ourselves to imagine what God can do? Have we taken the top off of our prayers and our pursuits and just dreamed about the God of infinite power? You see, when we were children, nothing was impossible, right? You know, with kids, nothing is impossible. Kids think they can fly. Kids think they can lift up anything. When kids are young and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? They don't say, well, let me think this through. I don't know how the economy is going to be then. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get an education or not. I'm not sure which area of training. They don't talk about limitations. They don't talk about all the things that we think about in life. To them, the possibilities are endless. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a ballet dancer. Nothing is impossible. And yet when you live long enough and you have your feet on the ground long enough, that imagination seems to disappear. Maybe it's time to get out of our own way, to let God just be God, and to watch, and to join him, to get on board with what he's doing, to expand our prayers beyond just the physical the physical concerns that we often pray about, and to allow God and to invite God and to ask God to break open the borders of his kingdom in our day, in our time, to initiate a spiritual revival. We're starting a new series today called Immeasurably More. We've used this language in our messaging for quite some time. It's on the the board behind me. This idea from Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, and that's where we begin. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. As we as a community of faith think about where is God leading us, where is God taking us, we want to be people of faith. We want to be people, yes, who are on the solid ground of reality, but also with our heart and our faith in the heavenly realms, knowing that God can accomplish so much more than we can even dream. In this series, we're going to look at the first part of the book of Acts, before Paul starts his missionary journeys. We're going to see God do something big, something extraordinary, something pivotal. And he does this without a government. He does this without a military. He does this without a big corporate sponsor or a celebrity endorsement. He does this without a big marketing campaign. 
He begins and unleashes the church. And the world would never be the same. You see, wishy-washy disciples are transformed into bold witnesses for Christ. Reluctance gives way to resilience. The gospel spreads throughout the known world. So the goal of this series is to allow us, to allow you, to let you allow you, to let me allow myself to experience some level of spiritual awakening. For God to light a fire in your soul, in your faith, in your family, in your mission, in your church. So let's begin at the beginning of the church. If you have a Bible, look at Acts chapter 2. That famous chapter, Acts chapter 2. Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And at the end of Luke, we see a crowd is gathered in Jerusalem. There is a feast going on. But this crowd specifically is there because they are tired of Jesus. They feel threatened by Jesus. And their message to Jesus and to the world about Jesus is very clear. Luke 23, 21. The crowd kept shouting, crucify him crucify him. Now, if you continue in Luke's gospel, and then when he starts Acts, he wrote both, and they probably were both together, and we separated them and put the gospel of John in between them. But in Luke's account, if you just go maybe a few pages over, we see another crowd at Jerusalem. There's another Jewish festival, and this crowd is also saying something, but it's a completely different message. Acts 2, 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Completely different tone, completely different message. What happened? Why the complete 180? This crowd goes, by the way, probably many of the same people, or at least some of the same people. The crowd goes from rage to remorse, from hostility to humility. What happened in the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost? What happened between crucify him and what must we do? Something had to happen. Well, a lot happened. More than anyone could have imagined. You see, God was up to something. It's Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival. 50 days after Passover, thus the penta means five. It's a major festival for the Jewish people. They bring their first fruits of their crops and they offer them to God as a preview of what they hope is to come. God, this is my first fruits of my crop and please bless my crop so that we have a great harvest this year. But on this Pentecost, there would be a different type of harvest. An incredible harvest of souls. God is at work. And just as Jesus promised and he predicted, the Spirit of God shows up. The text says that the sound of a violent wind shook the house. We in Oklahoma know about violent winds, don't we? This was a different type of wind. In fact, the word for spirit, the Greek word, also means wind or breath. God was breathing on his people in an unmistakable way, in a visible way. And the text tells us, here's the sight, here's what it looked like. These tongues of fire were above their heads. What did that look like? I have no idea. I remember Bible class as a kid, the little flannograph with the little 
you know, people and a little candle flame above their head. Maybe it looks something like that. I'm not sure. But I know this was something new. This was something different. You see, before God showed up externally, yes, he showed up in fire, but it was the fire in the pillar of fire leading Israel. It was the fire in the burning bush. It was the fire that descended on Mount Sinai as God descended on that mountain. And now all of a sudden, it's not out there. It's not external. It's right here. It's with us. It's in us. And if the fire wasn't enough to get people's attention, these disciples started speaking in languages that they had not studied and did not know. This certainly got people's attention. But of course, when God shows up, no matter how tangible, no matter how real, there are always skeptics. There are always people that say, no, there is a, there's an explanation for this. Their explanation was when they heard people speaking in languages they hadn't studied or didn't know, these people must have hit the bottle. They've been drinking too much. They're just babbling incoherently. And Peter stands up and he says, no, no, it's 9 a.m. No one's drank anything just yet. No, this is about God. God is up to something here. God is doing something here. This has always been a part of God's plan. And so Peter goes back to one of their prophets and he says, listen to what Joel says. Acts 2.17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, the winds of God's spirit were blowing through Jerusalem that day. There was an outpouring. And this outpouring of God's spirit would result in the proclamation of the gospel message and the massive response to that message. Verse 36, Peter preaches, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This was a spiritual awakening. This was a revival a revival that started a spiritual revolution that changed the world from just a handful of these fearful disciples to 3,000 converts for Christ that would go into the world and would bear witness to what they had seen and heard. So much so that the church would not only be established, but would survive, would thrive. 
even when the empires of that day that seemed so powerful would all fade away, what is still here today? Christianity, the church. There was an awakening. And I wonder, as I think about our day, as I think about our time, as I think about our world, could this type of revival happen again? Could we see God working like he did at Pentecost? And sometimes, immediately in our mind, we come up with all the reasons why that can't and shouldn't and won't happen, and we just open that box up, and we stick God in there, and then we live with our feet on the ground. But I wonder, could it happen? Could hostile crowds be transformed into committed followers of Jesus? Could we witness God's outpouring of his spirit in ways that are undeniable? Is it possible that our community, this place where we live, could be completely transformed more into the image of Christ? What about our nation? Could our nation experience a spiritual revival? Is it possible? What would that look like? What about us as a church? What would it look like for us to experience an outpouring of God's spirit in such a powerful way that it was undeniable, that it was clear, that it brought about radical transformation in our lives, in our homes, in our community. Where we had the faith to ask and imagine that God would break open the borders of his kingdom in our time and that we would be part of that. And then that we would have the faith to sit and watch, not sit by and watch, but to watch God and then join God and advancing the cause of Christ in our world. What would that look like? How could that happen? When we look at Acts 2, I think we see and learn some things about revival. I don't think it's a blueprint. I don't think it's a formula because if there's a blueprint for spiritual revival, it assumes what? That we are in charge of that. That if we just do these things, then it's going to happen. That's not the case. God is the one who brings about revival. It brings about awakening. And yet in chapter 2 of Acts, I think we see some conditions. Almost like meteorologists talk about atmospheric conditions that are conducive for storms. You know, the warm air or the lift. I'm not sure what it is. They know, and I'm glad they know. Well, in Acts 2, we see some conditions that when brought together make it conducive for revival, for awakening. And I want to share with you three as we think about what it might look like for spiritual awakening, revival in our day. And the first one is this, spiritual revival must be gospel-centered. What is the message that Peter preached that day? What message cut those people to the heart and caused them to realize they had killed the Messiah and they wanted to repent? What was that message? It was the gospel. It was the gospel. Peter said, God had accredited to you this man Jesus through his miracles and signs and wonders. You saw them. You heard Jesus. You witnessed a lot of those miracles. And then by God's plan, you put him on that cross. You were there. You yelled, crucify him. But that's not the end of the story. In verse 32, what does Peter say? God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. We saw it. 
We can bear witness. It's real. It's undeniable. Jesus conquered death, and through Jesus, so can you. You see, any revival that takes place today among us must be rooted in gospel. If we ever get away from the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus as our main message and our main focus, we are no longer the church. We may do lots of good things. We may have lots of good people. But unless we preach Christ and him crucified, we are powerless. We are powerless. And with the challenges that we're facing in our world today, spiritual platitudes and self-help tips are so inadequate. Shallow versions of spiritual, spiritual life and spirituality driven by feelings or by relative truth completely miss the mark. And at the same time, promoting a human-generated, works-based religion or elevating long-standing traditions as though they were biblical truth is disingenuous and deceitful. You see, we have generations emerging now who are asking very big, tough questions. They want to see something. They want to know something that is so compelling, so captivating, so real, that it draws them in, that it is irresistible. They're looking for truth. They're looking for direction. They're looking for something real and meaningful. We must point them to Jesus, to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the gospel. Listen to this quote. The message of the cross will always be foolishness to some, a stumbling block to others. But if our attention is on the market reaction, we move away from the power of the gospel. This fearfulness to talk about the blood of Christ is an overreaction. Worse than that, it borders on heresy, distorting and deflating the power of the good news. Jim Cimbala. You see, a spiritual revival must be gospel-centered. Secondly, a spiritual revival must be spirit-led. We see that in Acts 2. The spirit is always there, but in Acts 2, the spirit of God is flexing. Six different times we see spirit in that chapter. And every time we see the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, he is doing something. He is causing something. There is activity. There is movement. There is power. It's so difficult sometimes for us to understand what is the Holy Spirit. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is. I don't know how he works. Think about it this way. And this is probably oversimplistic, but at least it helps. Think about the Holy Spirit as the presence and the power of God. The presence and the power of God in us. Remember before it was out there. It was on the mountain. It was in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It was at the burning bush. But now it's in us. And that's what Peter says in this sermon in Acts 2. Verse 38. How does he respond when they say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? In you. 
whom you have received from God. Think about the powerful transformation that took place in the life of Peter. You see, he was in Jerusalem, right, when Jesus was arrested. And someone said, aren't you with him? Don't you know him? Aren't you one of his followers? And what did, Jesus, or what did Peter say? I don't know that guy. I don't want to know that guy. I don't have anything to do with that guy. He denied knowing Jesus. But just a little bit later, he's back in Jerusalem. And this time, what is he doing? He is boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus. What happened? A powerful and personal outpouring of God's spirit is what happened. So how much can we do in the church without the spirit of God? We can certainly go through the motions. We can certainly talk the talk. But we have no power. And if we have no power, we will be plagued by status quo and irrelevance. And these generations that we are so concerned about will look at us and say, you have nothing going on. There is nothing compelling about you. There's power in the work of the Spirit of God. The same thing is true in your own life. Without the power of God's Spirit, you will give in to temptation. You will get sidetracked from the way of Jesus. You will not do all that God wants you to do. You will be limited in your influence and in your work in this world because you lack the power of the Spirit. I can assure you that we don't have the power on our own to face this current cultural moment. There's no way we can do it on our own. We will crumble under the weight of this world. Spiritual revival must be gospel-centered. It must be spirit-led. And it should be confession-based. Throughout history, spiritual awakenings and spiritual revivals all began with repentance and confession. An acknowledgement that I am not where I need to be. The path I'm on is not right. Confession acknowledges that we are in need, that we don't have it all together. When Peter preached the gospel at Pentecost, the people were cut to the heart and they said, what do we need to do? What we did is wrong. What we're doing now, we're not on the right track. We need to make change. Sometimes this is the greatest work of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of sin. And maybe this is one of Jesus's and God's biggest miracles in our lives, breaking down those walls of pride, removing those masks of insecurity, and piercing those hard hearts so that we are receptive to God's work. See, that's where revival starts. Revival doesn't start with one taking a stand. Revival starts with one falling on his face or her face before God and saying, God, I'm a mess. We are a mess. God, we are trying, but we need you. What did God tell his people of old? Second Chronicles chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. 
You see, if there's going to be any type of spiritual awakening, any type of spiritual revival in our church, in your home, in this nation, in this community, it must begin with confession. Why do we want change if everything is as it should be? Confession is acknowledging that things aren't as they should be. Not just things out there, but things in my life. We don't confess much anymore, do we? When's the last time you confessed? You confessed to a trusted friend or family member. You confessed before your Bible class or small discipleship group or in front of the entire congregation. We don't confess much. Well, it's because we got it all together. That's right. We never sin. We're perfect. We don't have to confess because everything is going great. Yeah, I don't think that's the case. Do you? We don't confess because of pride. We don't confess because we don't want to look like we don't have it all together. And so we go on with our feet planted firmly in the realistic world of self-protection, of worrying about what people think, of being afraid that if I am vulnerable, if I let this mask down or take this wall down, people will hurt me. They will take advantage of me. It's no wonder why we fail to see God do much among us. We're not willing to let God see us. Although we know he already does. You see, the common theme through all three of these things is power. There is power in the gospel. Remember that song we sometimes sing, there is power in the blood, power in the blood. The gospel is powerful. It is compelling. It is captivating. And it's not just a story. It is a story grounded in history, in real life. That's what Peter says. This man, Jesus, he did these miracles, these signs among you. You crucified him, but God wasn't done. God raised him to life. And that life is offered to you, to me. There is power in the gospel story. There is power in the spirit of God who manifests himself in our world in tangible, visible ways. There is power in confession. There is something about confession that draws others to that person, that creates a culture of vulnerability and authenticity. And people are drawn to that. And that's where intimacy grows When we keep our mask on and our walls up, we never have intimacy with God or each other. There is power in confession. How can we expect to be people of power without the gospel, without the spirit, without confession? Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Throughout this series, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer. It's a simple prayer. I think it won't take long for you to memorize this prayer. And today, Let's put it on the screen. You can take a picture of it. You can write it down. 
If you're on board, I just ask you to consider saying this prayer. And here's the prayer. God, help us dare to imagine what you can do, what you might do, what you're able to do. And then give us the faith to see when you do it. God, help us dare to imagine how you can save this marriage. Help us dare to imagine how you can unleash the gospel in our community, in our world. God, help us dare to imagine what it might look like when this town, when this church has turned more closely to you and reflects more and more the image of your son. Help us to imagine, to dare to dream about what that might look like, what that might mean. And then God, give us the faith to keep our eyes open to see it, to see where you are, what you're doing. And then that demands a response. In humility, join you, God. We want to join what you're doing. Whatever you're about, that's what we want to be about. Wherever you lead us, that's where we want to go. Whatever you're doing, whatever it is, we want to follow. God, help us dare to imagine what you can do and give us the faith to see when you do it. Will you join me in praying this prayer over the next five or six, seven weeks, however long you want to, and just see what God does. See what God does. There is power available to you. And maybe for you it begins with confession. Confession that says, I need help. I've done wrong. My way isn't working. You can do that today. A couple of our shepherds and their wives would love to be with you, to help you, to listen to you, to pray with you. They're going to be in the parlor, little room right behind me. You can go there in just a minute. Find them there when we stand. And they'll encourage you. And if you need to confess, you can do that. Or if you just want a word of, of hope and, and, and joy, they would be glad to offer that as well. Or, of course, you can come down here. We will do that as a church family. Maybe for you, confession looks a little bit differently. Maybe confession isn't confession in the sense of admitting wrong, per se, but it's confessing your faith. Confessing, yes, you're a sinner, and confessing, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. We call that confession as well. What did Peter say when the crowd said, we messed up? What do we do? What can we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and that you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says that promise is not just for you on that day of Pentecost. It's for your children. It's for the next generation. It's for all of those who are far off. It is for you today. Maybe you need to respond to the invitation. And allow God to light a fire in you. Let's stand and sing.